Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here as we are into the second half of June 2021. If you're listening to this live on the air, it is the 20th of June and it is our summer solstice. The official solstice time is at 7.31 p.m. Alaska time and after that we'll be shifting so that the tilt of the earth is making the days a little bit shorter and the nights a little bit longer each day that we move through. Uh, right now, our nights are never completely dark here in Sitka. I had an opportunity to observe that firsthand this last weekend. Uh, did the breeding bird survey again. I took a year off last year with COVID. They didn't have any, but I've been doing this for several years otherwise and requires getting started at half an hour before sunrise. So in Sitka, they ask us to start at 3.29 a.m. to be out in position. That means a about a 2.30 rise time for me to get to where I need to be. And stepping out, even at that early time of the day, there were already some birds singing, a Swainson's thrush and an American robin. And with clear skies, it was very clearly light in the north and the northeast, although overall it was pretty dim. I hope to see some noctilucent clouds, uh, night shining clouds. It's the best time, at, well, it's the only time of year really to see those in the summer. And uh, with clear nights, sometimes you can see those sil silvery blue clouds uh, shining well after sunset. So hoping um, maybe to get a chance. Um, forecast is looking pretty cloudy, and it's been pretty cloudy so far this summer. But who knows? Uh, they've been showing up elsewhere, often limited to the Arctic Circle, but in recent years dipping to lower latitudes such as here. It's still a good time to get out and listen to singing birds, although the number of singers will probably diminish here over the next few weeks as more and more of them turn their attention to feeding their young birds and then getting ready for their southbound migration. I expect to see some southbound migrants, the shorebirds from up north, some of them starting to move through by the end of this month and certainly by the beginning of July. But still a great time to get out and see some flowers, especially if you get up high. Harbor Mountain Road is now open to the top here in Sitka, so a nice place to observe those alpine wildflowers. If you're getting out and seeing any, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is part of one I recorded earlier this month with Juno-based naturalist Richard Carstensen. I'll go ahead and join the conversation with me, remembering how I first heard about him and came to meet him, and we'll go from there. I think the first time I met you, Richard, was in, well, I want to say probably 2008 when you came here, and we, or maybe it was 2007, went up Indian River with Scott Harris and uh, checked out a big, uh, big hemlock tree up there. And before that, I, I had actually, I was just reflecting on this a, a few days ago. I think I'd read the nature of Southeast Alaska. I'd, I'd certainly seen it, and but I didn't like the names were just names. I did the authors; they, they weren't especially meaningful to me, uh, other than they were the authors. Um, but I was speaking with Richard Nelson. I introduced myself to him after he gave a talk at Whalefest one time, and and I was uh, saying, "Hey, you know, I'm interested in in sort of being a naturalist. I'm an aspiring naturalist." He he said, "Well, let's go for a walk around the park someday." So we went for a walk around the park and one of the things that he shared while I was walking was just folks that, uh, that he recommended I meet at some point. And you were one of the people he's, it, cause he was just reflecting on, on people that were, 
I think in his words, self-taught naturalist, more or less. And he, he described you as being a self-taught naturalist. And I think Greg Strebler was the other one. And I, I only met Greg Strebler briefly once. I've never actually talked to him to any significant degree. But uh, it was interesting to then meet you in person in, in 2008 and have some conversations while we were walking in the woods. And we've talked several times since then. It's always fun. So I appreciate your your willingness to join me here and uh, visit about natural history things. Well, yeah, Matt, I think you can remove the aspiring from the, your introduction <laughs> uh, introduction on your uh, website and, and blog. <laughs> I think, I think you paid your dues. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Yeah. The aspiring, I like to, I like to, I like to continue to aspire, I guess. I, I, I like to think of it as a desti- not a destination, but rather a journey sort of thing. And so that's part of the reason I, I continue to keep the aspiring aspect of it there is, is just as a little bit of a, of a reminder that uh, it's, it was like I say, that the mountain in front of me is, is always so much larger than the molehill behind me of those things that I, that I have sort of figured out or, or imagine that I have. Uh, there's, there's always always the horizon out there of all those other things that, that are some of which are only, you know, just beginning to come into my awareness and no doubt more things even beyond the horizon that I, that I don't even know that I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, definitely true. So nature is really good at um, showing us how ignorant we are. Yeah. Well, that's, that's half the fun, I suppose. And um, yeah. So you're in, I mean, you've been in Juno since, if I'm remembering correctly from our prior conversations, the, is it the early seventies? Um, mid to late, no, came up in May, 1977 and okay. lived in Wrangell for a summer and then drifted up to Juneau before winter and, and have been here ever since. And I remember you describing kind of a formative experience for you was spending, uh, was it a number of years as a care, as a caretaker at the, at the Boy Scout camp? Yeah. At Eagle River, which, uh, I now know, but did not then was a clean AD winter village of mm. about 50 people, um, up until, um, Euro contact. Um, and it's it, now that I know more about why people live where they do, it makes total sense. It was an amazing stroke of luck to just stumble into the caretakership of, uh, a mile square delta at the confluence of two major glacial rivers. And uh, that's where I decided I wanted to make maps and learn the names of everything and, and uh, figure out who eats who and how it's changing over time. Yeah. And there's a lot of dynamism there i think uh maybe in some ways more so than in sitka just because the the glaciers are closer well they their sea level essentially i not not at the sea right now but in in not so distant past uh reaching reaching much closer to the sea uh obviously not quite as uh significant in terms of the changes as are happening in glacier bay but um, I imagine there's a lot that's changed in the, I guess we're looking at almost 45 years that you've, you've been there observing. Yeah. The, um, the biogeographic province of the, of the Auk people is what was, I think the second most 
glaciated of 22 provinces in Southeast Alaska, second only to the Fairweathers. Um, so we're, yeah, the, the glacier, glacial story here, I think is just as fascinating as the one in Glacier Bay, but it hasn't been as well told because Glacier Bay has not only Greg Strebler, but a whole um, generational uh, coming and going of, of, of great uh, glaciologists and biologists that have slowly put that together. And then Greg and Wayne Howell, working with elders in Huna, added in the cultural side of that story. And, and that's on, on a uh, less ambitious scale is what I, I try to do here in Auk uh, country. Um, try to weave the human story with the natural history story. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You mentioned that in the the place where you were caretaker for for some time, uh, discovering later, learning later that it had been a traditional site of a of a winter village. And one of the things that I'm, I'm a little curious about now having that perspective and understanding of, of the, the deeper history of that, that location. Um, something that I, I spoke with, and I don't remember her name right off the top of my head, but I spoke with somebody who studies uh, the plants at places where people have lived. And so there's a, an island uh, set of islands called the Sanak islands out off that uh, they're on the, uh, the East side of the Alaska peninsula and there haven't been any humans living there for for some time, uh, as I understand it. But there were um, some sites of old uh, houses. I don't know if it was a full-on village exactly, but but certainly uh, at, at least a couple of houses um, from I think 2,500 years ago. And and she was looking at the the plants that were there and how they were different. <laughs> And 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 essentially the the hundreds of years, and I don't I don't actually don't remember if it was quite twenty five hundred years ago. That's seeming like a long time in my in my head now. So maybe it was only several hundred years ago. But it was it was some some great distance of time, and this is a unforested area. So it's not like it's not like the things living there have tree tree length sort of life cycle times. Uh, but there was still distinct evidence of of the activities of people in the way that the plants were arranged on, on that landscape. And, you know, I've, I think you and I've maybe talked before. I don't remember if it was something recorded or just talking about uh, the presence of nettles, you know, associated with uh, places where uh, I know, I know, you know, Scott Berlinski, he's somebody I've spoke to in town and he, uh, he lives here in Sitka and he had mentioned that he, mostly found them at places that he thought were likely to be hunting camps because um, small islands where, where hunters would have, have spent time and um, and village site type places and was actually hadn't found them anywhere that weren't places like that. And I had, I had found them well up in the mountains in, in places that were uh, not, not likely to be uh, associated with any human habituate uh, ha- habitat uh, or any, um, living spaces of humans, I should say. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. I'm curious if there's things that you noticed in that Eagle, uh, Eagle river Delta area that now understanding a little more about the cultural history of it as well, uh, might be attributable to the, 
to the sort of the, the longer term presence of, of humans in the way that they interacted with the, the landscape and the plants and animals there? Well, um, nettle is not present there. And that that's kind of interesting, but it's one of the most acidic sites in, in Auk country. Uh, it, it's coarse sand derived from granite and diorite and washed down by the rivers. And it's excessively drained and extremely acidic. And nettle is uh, um, a plant that's fond of enriched sites. Um, and, and I think that the place where people were living um, at Aske, Twisted Tree, Eagle River, is, um, has been washed away. So if there was cultural enrichment at the south end of that delta, it's, it's no longer present. But um, I am, uh, like you and Scott, fascinated with the distribution of nettle. And I would have said, like Scott did until recently, that I, I'd only seen it around cultural sites. But uh, uh, another thing I'm very interested in lately is mountain goats. And the mountain goats I'm particularly watching are in a giant... Uh, avalanche uh, uh, swath that locally folks call the Barrens Slide, and I call Nettle Slide because there's, it's full of nettles. And I've begun to move higher up as the goats are retreating into their summer range and moving higher. I'm following them up this avalanche chute and realizing that nettle is not restricted to the the lowest couple hundred feet, it goes all the way up through this really rich and and almost uh, annually disturbed site. Uh, so, yeah, I'm coming to your conclusion that it's uh, it it manages to get around on its own without. With uh, certainly humans have uh, accounted for a lot of its distribution in the southeast, but uh, not all of it. Yeah, it is that that's not unlike where I was seeing it at upland places. It was at uh we were working on Blue Lake here, which is the well it's the water source for Sitka and and one of two primary hydro well, one or two hydro facilities. And so some not not too many years ago, but uh, there was uh some envir- environmental work needed to survey work basically as part of the permitting process to raise the height of the dam. A bit, and so we were uh, surveying, and there were nettles that grew around the upper part of Blue Lake, and in, in avalanche tracks, kind of mixed in with the alders. But as we went up the valley, up, up well up the valley, uh, into places that were basically unforested, and I and that's I, I suspect that in part it was because of of microclimate things and these uh, getting to be much more interior of the island valleys. And higher elevation at that point, they're probably in in getting close to maybe a thousand feet elevation, and surrounded on all sides by you know much much higher peaks. Uh, that uh, and then and then just regular avalanches coming into those into those valleys, um, and, and all the way across them, I think. But that's that's where there were lots of nettles growing in with um, like ferns and stuff on these kind of un, loose loose rock. Um, slide areas, which I think were just sort of the accumulation of stuff falling down, and then the avalanches depositing things, and and yeah, there was just a lot of a lot of nettles mixed in with the feather, uh, the not the feathers, the, the lady ferns, and um, and other other things, uh, cow parsnip, and 
and various other herbaceous plants, mostly that I'm uh, remembering in the moment um, growing up there. And that's where I was like, yeah, I think these probably, they're just happy here for whatever reason. <laughs> but it's such a useful plant, both for food and for cordage. I was speaking with somebody who lives in um, in Canada on Salt Spring Island, and he was describing and I don't know if they did the same thing here or not, but he was describing that one of the strategies of, of the, I believe it was the Salish people there. More generally, I think there was a specific group of them. I don't remember their name, but um, would, would actually make large nets out of nettle fibers. Uh, they'd use that for the, for the, for the uh, strands of the net. And then they would, these had to be large enough. They would stretch across the mouth of a bay and they would slowly, they would slowly, or maybe they didn't actually stretch the whole net across the mouth of the bay, but they would slowly move in the bay um, and and gradually push the ducks up towards the head of the bay. And then and then they would scare the ducks there and have this big net up that would, would catch the ducks as they took off somehow. <laughs> and so it was just, they needed massive amounts of cordage to do that. Uh, and nettles was, I guess, largely what they were using, as, as, as I understood he was telling me. And I don't know, you know, what all nettles would have been used for uh, in this area if they had similar processes or, or anything like that. But it seems like they're super important both for food and for um, for fiber. Uh, there's a, a photo of Anshkalsu, the uh, village of, of Akwan out at um, what we now call Ak Recreation Area, and. There, um, it was at a time when uh, most of the clans had moved downtown to be around uh, gold and employment. Um, but the and it appears that they were disassembling the lodges, but several of them are still standing in the picture. And there's two men standing on a sort of porch like structure in front of the most intact clan house, and the house is perched right at the edge of a 10 foot drop off, which is a wave cut face during the peak of the little ice age. And the whole thing is covered with what I'm pretty sure is nettle. Um, mm. Mostly those kind of places, if left to their own devices, are a rich, you know, 20, 30 species of, of forbs and, and, and herbs and shrubs. But this was a monoculture of something, and I'm pretty sure it was nettle. And uh, Krauss, who wintered in 1980, I think, up in Kluckwan, said the same thing. He said, in between the clan houses was a rank thicket of nettle. And uh, <laughs> it wouldn't have been a fun place for an infant to go outside and play. <laughs> but, um, but it would have been extremely useful for um, fresh greens in the spring and, as you say, for fiber. And I think all the more so as you move north through the archipelago away from the range of red and yellow cedar. Mm -hmm. um, when you don't have those trees for fiber, nettle becomes even more important. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and Krauss was there in, in 1880? I think it was 1880, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The man who wrote the Clinkett Indians. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it is it is fascinating the um and I think uh the if if I'm remembering correctly, I, I feel like you and I might have talked about this a little bit before, but but some of the places where there were village sites going there and there's still 
depressions, for example, in the in the ground uh, that that are locations where clan houses might have been, and um, so, some of that evidence as well. Is that something that you've you've looked at? Uh, a, a bit. I'm certainly not an archaeologist, but um, some of my friends are, and I'm I'm slowly trying to develop a better eye for those sorts of things. Yeah, and uh, I've I visited many of the documented uh, cultural sites in Southeast. Do those old village sites show up in, in LIDAR imagery? I can think of one example where they do, but um, it, it's something that needs to be worked on more. Uh, if you look at the bare earth from the Juno LIDAR that we acquired in 2013, it clearly shows the rectangular pads of the clan houses. And that's impressive because in the summer, when, when that grows up, you could be standing in those uh, um, pads and not recognize them because you can't. You can hardly see your feet; it's so thick there. But lidar, um, it has two components when it's delivered. One is what they call the point cloud, which shows you the vegetation structure. But you can strip that away and just um, create a. Uh, "Quote unquote bare earth surface um, from the, the final hits that go all the way to ground, and it's uh, um, really detailed for our Juno area. And you've got it now for a lot of Sitka, uh, and it, it definitely shows those features. Um, what we want to start using it for is to." find evidence of settlements hundreds of feet above sea level in areas that are now old growth forest, um, which should be pushing it all the way back to the early Holocene when sea levels were higher and, and uh, seal hunting cultures lived in the archipelago. Mm. Yeah. I mean, especially what is it? The, I remember um, hearing from Jim Bastel, the, the a little bit of the story of of sea level rise in Juno being uh, post post uh, last ice age being pretty rapid and, and extreme <laughs> in terms of like relative to uh, relative to what's what is is present that I can't remember is it um, Spalding Meadows or something that that there's been uh, clams clams in growth position found uh, that would have been um, you know relatively recent after after deglaciation of of the juno area from from the last you know big ice age yeah um six to seven hundred feet above sea level mm. and we're uh we're able to look at those landforms that are now covered with forest um, and imagine where for instance a stream might have come into a cove or even more exciting to me, there, there are a couple of places where there are obviously little tombolos. A tombolo is a spit that, uh, un, of unconsolidated material that c- connects to a bedrock island that's not an island at low tide. And uh, what's appealing about them to, to settlers is that they often create a, a, a double-sided canoe beach. Um, so depending on the wind direction, you can come in on the lee side in protection. Uh, and we, uh, I went up there with my wife, Kathy, and, and Rachel Myron, an archaeologist, uh, 
um, to a site just like that um, on, at the north end of our road system. We climbed up maybe 300 feet to this ancient tombolo, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't have enough time to to really do it justice. But we dug a few pits, and Rachel was looking for things like charcoal and 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 midden deposits. Um, but eventually, we'll 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 find them. It's it, it's much more challenging up here than it is for the area that Jim mostly works in with Risa Carlson. They they found a lot of sites in the six to nine thousand year range using the lidar that they have for uh, for Tan, Prince of Wales Island. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess how how much organic stuff is accumulated? So when you're digging the pits, like how 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 deep of organic are you going through before you get to the what would have been the unconsolidated beach? It was surprisingly uh, shallow. It was, uh, on that site, I think it was mostly just 6 to 12 inches. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, Sitka being on the, the outside here, I think um, a little bit west of, of the hinge, I suppose, where, where the full, bu- full bu- bulge was up and, and the tectonic uplift is slow enough that it, it, it seems that much of the Sitka area was is... Um, not emerged essentially uh the 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 four bulge collapsed and and things that would have been above sea level during the ice age are now in many in many cases or at least some cases deep underwater <laughs> um and so it's a little bit of a different different scenario here but there are uh i guess the the high high resolution bathymetry is is giving some insights in in perhaps uh similar ways that lidar has been doing um, but but under the ocean, yeah, yeah. I guess Jim has freshwater diatoms from deep under saltwater from the Sitka area. Yeah, I think that was part of the project that um, if I rem- I don't <laughs> the name I most associate with it is Tom Ager, but I know <clears throat> excuse me he he was largely looking at pollens in in sediment deposits both both from the ocean and and from the uh, from freshwater areas. Uh, lake lake sediments and it was interesting to talk to him and and actually somebody else I, I talked to more recently uh, a fellow named Jason Briner I don't know if you've uh, met him or not he's a geologist and his specialty is uh, he's I believe with the University of Buffalo he came to Sitka they were they were sampling he and his graduate student Caleb were um, hoping to fly and they they ultimately made it to South Baranoff they had some uh, dating techniques based on, if I'm remembering correctly, it's beryllium, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But it's, essentially, they could they could date how long rock had been exposed. And under an assumption that glaciation would scrape away the layers of rock. And so after after the glaciers retreated, then then the rock is exposed to cosmic rays and that and then there's a timing process that happens there. And so there's a way of, of essentially dating whether the rock is from prior to the last ice age or not um, in terms of exposure. So they're looking, that's a way of, of kind of um, looking for um, possible refugias. Um, but when he was here, he was, he was uh, sharing with me about, you know, people imagined that the ice came and they went and, and it's a lot more dynamic than that, uh, that the ice is, is constantly, expanding and retreating in various ways and so so 
you know, we talk about the ice age maximum and we talk about where we're at now, but, but it was moving in and out at various places. And, you know, the most clear example for, for, for us in Southeast Alaska is the little ice age and, and how Glacier Bay was, was filled up. And prior to that, it, it had been more open. I don't know if they know how open it was prior to the little ice age. Um, but, but it's uh, much more dynamic than, than sometimes some of us tend to think about. And, and so that gave me a kind of a different perspective. And one of the ways that they look at that is looking at lake sediments and the layers in lake sediments, and they can start to uh, get an understanding of how the, how the, the ice, the glaciers were, were on the landscape, you know, upriver essentially of those lakes. So the, um, yeah, one other question on the LIDAR, I guess this is kind of more of a technical question for my own curiosity is the, that, are they using different um, wavelengths of light or something that some that, that penetrate through vegetation and, and are reflected back from the ground or how is it that working? Cause when you have such a dense canopy cover, it's hard to imagine like a visible light making it all the way to the ground and, and getting a signal. So I, I haven't really understood or, or known how that works exactly. Yeah. I'm not the best on the technology of it. Um, I've, I've used it a lot. So I know what its strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, it, it, uh, it, under a really dense tree canopy, um, you often get a, a fairly um, blocky looking image for ground. Um, in other words, not enough light pulses reach the ground and bounce back to, de to deliver a, a high res model. Um, and, and, and that can be adjusted, but like, for example, the the lighter that we have for Tan for the southern uh, timberlands is not as good as the uh, lighter that was delivered prior to that for the Juno area. Hmm. Um, but it's good enough that in places you can see sinkholes from on the karst. Uh, um, in the Juno area, we can see um, if, if uh, during the Little Ice Age, uh, two or three centuries ago, there was uh, still stand of the sea at maximum marine intrusion and waves carved um, little faces into soft sediments. And if it, if, if it just creates a, say a two foot drop down, if, as long as that continues for some distance, we can easily pick it up once we turn that into a hillshade and, and, and make it look like it actually would if it had a, a light source shining on it. Um, and, um, and then, of course, you add uh, contours to that. Uh, we we can easily make believable one foot contours from the Juno lidar, and that combines to give us a really good sense of where marine landforms are, both from the Little Ice Age and from the Great Ice Age thousands of years ago. Hmm. How, how much uh, is it? How much, um, or or if any, I guess I hadn't really thought about this. Uh, rebound is happening in the Juno area from Little Ice Age um, retreat? Um, what we discovered when we were able to look at the entire uh, Juno area road system is that at 32 feet above today's mean lower low water, zero in your tide book, there's one of these wave carved faces that I just described. Um, the Corps of Engineers uh, uses the 20.6 foot uh, 
elevation as today's extreme high water. So say 21 um, subtracted out of that 32 feet that we we have evidence for in the the landforms is uh, 11 feet of 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 land rise um, um, as the um, ice load is lessened and, and the land's bouncing back. And indications are that that's um, that we're good for at least several more feet of that. Wow. Yeah. So the and that is that true throughout the the length of the road system, or is it more concentrated? Yeah. yeah, I would have expected it to be greater in the north because that rate um, does increase going up toward Haynes and Skagway, um, and drops off uh, to almost nil around Sitka. I think you're you're coming up still maybe about a tenth of an inch. Um, but uh, yeah, to my surprise, that 32 foot was pretty consistent throughout Akintaku country. Hmm. Well, and I guess I suppose the other thing is that uh, there there's plenty of ice around that area directly in the in the Juneau ice field and the glaciers that that came down, as well as then not that far away from Glacier Bay and all the ice that was that was there. And I I you know I the presumably the I don't. I guess I don't know how many feet of uplift it's been in the Glacier Bay area proper, Gustavus area. Um, but yeah, Sitka, as I understand, it's like at best a quarter of inch uh, on on the north 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 of town a little ways. Uh huh. Yeah, I think Glacier Bay is coming up roughly twice as fast as we are here. That 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 would be about the fastest rate of rise in the world. Um, and as you say, this is this is in response to the recent Little Ice Age. It's not a continuation of uplift from m- millennia ago. That uplift um, in most places was complete within a few millennia. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of these things that I always it, it's always worth reminding myself. It feels like that human lifetimes are so short and, and especially our, our sort of adult lifetime where we're kind of, well, our formative, uh, the formative time of our lives when, when at least to me, it feels like that's when normal is our, our baseline is sort of established at a, at a certain time. And if we move to a new place, then it's probably the first handful of years, you know, that we're in a new place. Uh, in my case where I grew up, where I live now, I, I, I feel like my baseline was sort of set around the time of, you know, probably eight to eight to 15, 16, somewhere in that kind of, I was old enough to kind of be paying attention and be aware of the weather and that sort of thing. And, um, and time seems a little different at that age than it does as an adult. And there's just sort of a a normalness to that, to that. And that's kind of my, I, I noticed this is my baseline exception. And it's easy to forget that there are, that there's a lot of variability on, on many different scales and that, the trees and the forest is constantly regenerating through landslides and wind throws and trees growing, new trees growing or the movement of rivers and waters. And, and then on even longer scales, we have these, these ice pulses, little ice ages, even longer scales, these, these larger ice ages and the, the even longer scales of the tectonic movements and those kind of things. And all of those are having an effect that is 
sensible at some level. You know, we can certainly measure it these days uh, with with some of the high precision technology that that is available. Uh, but it's it's easy to sort of forget that there's this dynamism happening at these at these longer timescales that are so much longer than than human lifespans and it's easy to just sort of have this this feeling of staticness um and then to say wait a minute in the last couple hundred years you know juno is is 11 feet higher than it used to be uh <laughs> in terms of sea level and gustavus even more so uh, and in some places like uh, gustavus especially i think it it's apparent and and i it's I, I didn't realize that it was that much in Juno. I mean, I guess it makes sense now, now that I think about it and, and you re- shared that. But that means that some some properties, I suppose, where people have had property for 100 years uh, on, a, on a shoreline, that's probably changed a fair bit in the last 100 years. And that has uh, um, created a conservation issue here in Juno that um, we just did a little study of uh, the the what is locally referred to as the Mendenhall wetlands. And I, I'm trying to migrate away from important white guy names. So I'm using the, the clinket name for that Tashuyi river or tidal or mud flat. Um, that land is, is rising and um, jurisdictionally the boundaries of the state game refuge on those wetlands is determined by mean high water. Uh, so landowners can file for accretion as they gain land. And that, that's been eating away at the, the margins of the, <clears throat> the refuge. So the Southeast Alaska Land Trust um, has been working with landowners to try to um, get conservation easements on accreted lands. And they've been very successful in some parts of the, the um, wetland margins. And uh, this this spring, um, I wasn't even aware of it until this year, but uh, nationally, the month of May is called American Wetlands Month. And um, agencies like Fish and Wildlife uh, uh, select sort of focal wetlands to uh, celebrate and, and bring to um, national attention. And this year, they selected Tashiyi, the Mendenhall Wetlands. And I got involved with with the creation of a story map, which is something I've always wanted to learn how to do. Um, I do a lot of GIS in, in the program ArcMap, and, and the makers of ArcMap, Esri, have been uh, um, making it possible to tell stories with maps. They're called story maps, and they're um, more user-directed than, say, a normal presentation uh, you, you can um, dial into a map and move around and look at areas that catch your interest. Um, and, but you can embed videos in them. And we, we um, just went live with a story map for Tashuyi that you can now download and watch from a number of sources. You can go on the National um, Fish and Wildlife Service website and find it there. Or you can um, stream it from inside my website, Juno Nature. So the the story map on Juno Nature is it JunoNature.com? Uh, dot org. Okay. Dot org. Yep. It's and actually discoverysoutheast.junonature.org. 
All right, and and look for the uh, the story map under. Um, is there a particular place to look for it under? Uh, yeah, uh, I just sort of re- rejuvenated my blog, and um, I have to have you to thank for this, Matt. I've been um, following your blog for a long time, and um, I, I haven't been um, a regular blogger until just recently. But I've, I've been hoping to build up viewership for Juno Nature by posting more regularly. And and so when you now go to the homepage of Juno Nature and s- scroll down a little bit, you'll see that there's a, a, a subscription-enabled blog. So you can receive an email if uh, it, um, it notifying you that there's new activity on Juno Nature. Um, and I, I think the most recent or second most recent uh, blog post on that is uh, about the story map. Yeah, it's you know it's it's an interesting thing. This this I know I, I've seen some of your your trip journals, so I I know that you have extensive <laughs> extensive journals from from decades of of time and exploration in, in Southeast Alaska and maybe beyond as well. Uh, and I've always appreciated uh, getting to to look at your your journals on on trips that are trips you've made in the area, you know, Sitka area where I'm, I'm more familiar with and, and more particularly interested in. And the, uh, the, the amount of detail and work that you put into those is, is been impressive. And I, I find that for me, you know, my web blog is kind of the, the equivalent of, of that for me. Like it isn't nearly as, as detailed, uh, but it is kind of my, my little journaling record. And I always just, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, uh, I'll just do it in a way that, uh, you know, anybody can look at it. And it's also easier for me to look at it that way. And so one of the things that I have on my site is a little on this day in um, links. So I, part of my daily routine is actually to look at the daily, to the web blogs that I have uh, journal entries, essentially, I call uh, photo journal entries that I posted for, for that, that calendar day in prior years. And it's been uh, actually, I found it to be really interesting. Sometimes it reminds me of things I'd forgotten about, or it reminds me to go look, oh, this is the time of year. If I want to see this, I need to go look for it, <laughs> sorts of things. And so it's been a it's been a helpful part of, of my experience and journey, uh, just kind of having it having it published in that way. Um, even even though certainly there have been times where I wished I had been more consistent and I like, oh, I, f- I forgot so many things that I, I just don't even remember now uh, and can't can't put it in here but uh it's been nice to have that and so yeah it's great to have your your record of of things here on your juno nature site both the 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 blog that you're you're working on and and also the more uh in-depth things and as i recall you there was a project ongoing to digitize your uh, many of your journals i don't know were those going to be made public at some point or are they are they um archived somewhere now digitally i i would sure like to um the, it's one of those projects that that other things on my to-do list tend to pile up on top of um w- about 10 years ago i spent a good part of the winter um going through my old handwritten journals and typing them up actually now i, I could do it much more efficiency efficiently with voice narration uh, and then uh, then add in photographs that at the time were 35 millimeter slides that are mostly now scanned and then drop those in and then in GIS add maps. And 
say I did a kayak trip around QU Island in 94, I think it was. And uh, um, I, I would have um, at that time had topographic maps, maybe 10 of them pasted together to cover the whole trip. And every day I, at the, in camp, I would draw my uh, route and, and mark my campsites and um, interesting observations where I saw a bear on the beach. So that was my, my form of GIS back then. And it's, it's really fun to take those and, and turn them into a, a modern GIS map with all of the different layers that you can put onto that that help explain why things occur where they do. You know, a ge geology layer or a, a streams layer that shows where the salmon are. Things that I didn't have access to at that time. Yeah, it's the 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 tools and the access to information and and layers of information. Essentially, is, uh, I mean, it's, I imagine that when you're first getting started, it would have been hard to even dream that that you would have sort of fingertip access to all of these things that that now now we we almost begun to take for granted in some ways, I suppose. Even during the Landmark Trees Project, when we were trying to document the largest trees in southeast Alaska, I, I would not have believed that I could one day sit in my desk and essentially do a landmark tree assessment for an acre, measuring the height of every tree in the LiDAR point cloud. One, one thing you can't, still can't do is, is diameters. The LiDAR is not very good at telling you how big around a tree is. So I guess I would still have to go, but it, I could probably do a much more accurate depiction of a forest stand in the lighter point cloud than I could in a couple hours in the field. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose the the ways um, it, it's not that it's a substitute for for time in the field because I think there's there's probably things that you just can't get other than by being there and experiencing it. Certainly on a personal level. But even on a on a more scientific level, I suppose, and 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 seeing what's there, doing the the diameter measurements, for example, uh, but that having the ability to rely on lidar data for heights and and some other aspects of the stands that that it's good at allows you to then focus on the things that that you can't do with that and that are are better done by you know the the human field time. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is, it is kind of, I mean, it's always nice to have an excuse to get out. Not that I need a lot of excuse to get out for me. It's mostly just wandering around and seeing what's what. And, uh, I've, I've been a little, I'd say a lot less structured in my, in my, um, sort of project approach, uh, than, than some of the work that you've done around, around the region I know. And, uh, I, I always appreciate and enjoy the folks who are able to kind of take that more structured approach, but I find myself much more of a, uh, shall we say wanderer <laughs> in my, in my proclivity, in my tendencies, in terms of I just like to, to see what's around and, and see what catches my interest in the moment. And um, well, I, I did want to give you a chance. Also, I know you've been doing some, some work in the schools and there's some of that on your website, on the Juno Nature website, but just, yeah, curious to hear a little bit about some of what you're doing with the, the teachers in the school districts there in, in, in your, in your area. 
I have decided to add a um, section to the header topics on Juno Nature called Schools, um, be, partly because of our work with Elizabeth Kent in the Juno School District, who's a coach for elementary school teachers. Um, and she and our, our Discovery Southeast naturalist, Kelly Sorensen, have been collaborating to provide materials for each of our schools, and not just elementary, but ultimately we want to do this even at the university level. Um, just what is it that's cool about the area you can walk out the door from and explore? Uh, and we've we've got quite a bit of, of material from that dates back to the early days of discovery when Greg Stoveler and I uh, went around the, the district and then later southeast wide um, doing workshops for specific schools. So these are place-based materials that um, ho hopefully uh, the collaboration will make more accessible to teachers. I try to just put out the raw material and then have folks that are, are better at it adapting to, to various grade levels like Kelly and Elizabeth take that and and turn it into materials that are real easy for teachers to use. So I, I just feel that um, the most effective I can be as a naturalist um, in, in this community is to work with educators. Uh, and, and it's never been more obvious to me than during COVID just what a uh, service these folks are doing for us and anything we can do at discovery to support teachers is uh is kind of our my first priority nice and for folks that don't live in juno specifically but might be listening to this do you does discovery southeast have some materials that are um might be helpful for for teachers and, and parents, uh, presumably elsewhere. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and a, a lot of the stuff that's more generic, like just about species and habitats can apply anywhere in Southeast. But uh, it, it, in the early 1990s, Discovery got a, an Eisenhower Math and Science grant to do workshops in schools. And we began here in the Juno District but Greg Strebler and I took that on the road in, in the second and third year, and we gave workshops up in Haines, in Huna, at Sitka, Angoon, and Petersburg. And it, in each of those workshops, uh, folks from the smaller communities converged. And we developed materials that are now a quarter century old, but as you know, natural history is pretty timeless. So the the um, the delivery methods have changed. We're no longer projecting with 35 millimeter slides, but we've scanned those and we we um, uh, we have much more effective means of distributing that kind of stuff. But and the the focus of each of those workshops was the immediate surroundings of those schools and places that if, if we learned that there was a place that people would bus to or carpool to that was important as a field destination, we would work with that. But yeah, we, we do have those. Um, Discovery Southeast is pretty Juno-centric as far as our day-to-day -day work. But uh, personally, my 
um, I, I feel like my turf is Southeast Alaska. I've spent my 40 years here trying to see as much of Southeast as I possibly can. And COVID put a little damper into that, but hopefully I'll do more traveling this, this field season. Yeah, it's been interesting. One of the things as I work through my 20 plus years of photos of things <laughs> uh, and put them in iNaturalist as observations, the nice thing is that then I have this map of my observations and I can, I can look at, at those and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not super prone to traveling. I've done a little bit of traveling in Southeast, but not a lot. And the road system in Sitka is pretty limited. So I just, I just went through my observations the other day and kind of did some rough calculations. I've, I, I've put in t- over 25,000 observations in iNaturalist. Uh, each of those would have a photo associated with them. Wow. Of, of something identifiable going back to the late nineties when I first started taking some, some pictures. Uh, and, and of those 96% of them are within 15 miles of my home. 90% of them are within <laughs> 10 miles of my home. So I have over 23,000 within 10 miles of my home. And, and that's, uh, that's, almost 2000 species within 10 miles. Uh, and that includes essentially the, the road system of, of Sitka. So, and, and despite that, there's all these, like we were talking about earlier, there's all these little gaps of places that I know that I have never been to, uh, you know, these, these steep slopes off the trails. Um, uh, and you know, you, you can definitely see the lines of trails in the, in the map of my observations. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have this this interest in exploring those, but I'm also in, so I'm interested primarily in Sitka, but but I, I like to think about it as Sitka within the context of Southeast Alaska, and so it is interesting to travel some different places. I've been up to Yakutat, and and a couple of years ago had an opportunity to be a guest naturalist on a cruise, and and was able to go. We went, uh, I flew to Juneau, and the cruise went along. Uh, from Juneau and hit uh, Tracy Arm and then and then came across through Frederick Sound and then and then up around and ended in Sitka, uh, so it was it was interesting to see some of the stuff there, some of the the plants that, uh, well that don't even show up here at all, or if they do, they're they're pretty unusual, and to see them growing in different ways in different places there, and just to start to understand a little bit uh, some of that, so, some of the ways that things are different across. I mean, Southeast Alaska isn't tiny by any stretch of the imagination, but it's such a varied, uh, topographic, topographically varied landscape. It's a relatively young landscape for the most part. Um, but a lot of, you know, Sitka doesn't have a lot of variation in geology, but across Southeast Alaska, there's a lot of variation in geology and landform. And so, um, yeah, just having a, a, getting a sense of where things are and why, and, and I've been putting some energy into, uh, compiling the ref, you know compiling the just a summary of of observa- uh, like the some so many of the herbarium databases are online now so you can in the, the you can start to look and see where those ebird is is bird observations and so beginning to ask some of those questions and and that's one of the things I'm actually looking forward to doing uh, hopefully in the, in the coming years, maybe doing a little bit more traveling myself around Southeast, but even if I don't, you know, collaborating with other folks from other communities who are interested in various aspects of natural history and, and just having the conversations like what plants, you, you know, this plant's super common here. Do you, do you see it? Uh, red huckleberry is an example of one that I think is kind of unusual in Juneau, but it's super common here in Sitka. 
And so just starting to, to understand the distribution patterns and, and then start to ask them the questions like, why, <laughs> why is that uh, more common? And, and that, you know, the, the, as you were talking about just exploring the immediate area right around the schools, you know, what came to mind was how valuable and powerful just simple curiosity is uh, and just going out and seeing what you see and, and being open to and inviting of, of curiosity around what that is and the questions that come up and the sometimes surprising answers that if you, if you follow that question up and, and follow the thread that it, it uh, sort of leads, uh, you know, starts you on that, that you, you, you find some, some really interesting and, and fascinating stories. So um, yeah, as we, are wrapping up here. Any anything else you'd like to to mention? No, I uh, always uh, learn a lot and have a great time chatting with you, Matt. And hope we can do it again in the not too distant future. Yeah, I look forward to that. I'll be interested to learn what you find out more about your your goats on the on the slopes above your above your house and um and I guess. One question I, I'd like to ask you is, uh, th- this is something that I have recently thought about. I thought, oh, it'd be, it'd be fun. As I mentioned at the very beginning that uh, Richard Nelson actually had recommended that I that I chat with you. Some, oh, it's been probably at least 15 years since I had that conversation with him, probably a little longer. And uh, so I was, if, if there's anybody you'd suggest that I, that I, um, get in touch with and uh, natural history wise for, for Southeast Alaska, I'd, I'd be interested in, in recommendations for, for folks to, to chat with. You know, I've thought that that's some, another thing we should uh, do as a service. You know, I think of discovery Southeast as kind of the interface between the educational and the scientific communities, or maybe more broadly than the scientific, the, the community of people who, are really dialed into our environment. Um, I've imagined having a sort of uh, flow chart of who to go to to answer what kinds of questions. Um, but if I had to name one person, it's the person that Nell's already mentioned to you is Greg Stradler. Hmm. Um, that that man is just amazing. Uh, I, I've I've never met anyone as astute or broadly based um, in, in any of my travels. Um, and yeah, far, far and away the best naturalist I know. Well, thank you, Richard. And um, yeah, I just appreciate your, your time and willingness to visit. It's always, it's always fun to talk natural history and, and learn about what you're, you're observing out there and, and share stories. Same here, Matt. You've been listening to part of a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Juno-based naturalist Richard Carstensen. If you want to hear the other part of the conversation, it was my last show two weeks ago. You can find that show and other shows in my archive at sitkanature.org slash raven. I appreciate Richard taking some time to visit with me and appreciate you for listening here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.